And a very good and a happy Friday. It is Friday, January 29th, 2021, and there is big news, and I mean big news on this Friday when it comes to travel in this country. Prime Minister announcing a crackdown on non-essential travel and a bunch of new measures, including the suspension of flights to sunny destinations until the end of April. Here's Justin Trudeau from earlier today. The government and Canada's main airlines have agreed to suspend service to sun destinations right away. Air Canada, WestJet, Sunwing, and Air Transat are cancelling air service to all Caribbean destinations and Mexico starting this Sunday up until April 30th. They will They will be making arrangements with their customers who are currently on a trip in these regions to organize their return flights. All right. There's the prime minister from earlier this morning. And joining us now to unpack all of this is travel expert Marty Firestone, president of Travel Secure. He joins us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Marty, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Well, I'm okay. Thanks, uh, Marty. Uh, What are the details, first of all, on these uh, airlines essentially being grounded? Just heard the Prime Minister there. Air Canada, WestJet, Sunwing, Air Transit. I mean, have you ever seen a move like this? Never, never. He he actually pulled the trigger today. I never thought he would. He basically shut down March break. There is nobody now that was going Cancun, Puerto Vallarta, anywhere Caribbean that can now travel. So Sunday, January 31st to April 30th, that's it. There is no more travel to sun destinations. Okay. Do we know what that means, by the way? That seems like a bit of a blanket statement to sunny destinations. Uh, It says right now Caribbean and Mexico. So that seems to be one of the sunny destinations. Uh, Is there any others at this point? I know of no more. But that's a huge market right there when you think about it. That's taking care of just about, uh, I'm guessing, at least 75% of any one sun destination for a March break, short of USA and Florida and all that, of course. I was about to ask you about that. Florida is not part of that? No, absolutely not. It says right now Caribbean and Mexico, so that's what i got to believe at this point. Yeah. Okay, and what do we know about the airlines? Are they being compensated at all for this? I mean, they're going to be out of pocket, obviously. Well, this is what you'll never know that goes behind the scenes. Was there something arranged or some understanding of a bailout or something? You've got to listen to what I'm saying. We have to close down that March break, and this is how we're going to have to do it. So who knows? That's something that may come out later, but at this point, no one's talking. Okay. And what is happening, Marty, with these airlines and their customers that are already at these quote-unquote sunny destinations? Uh, Are there any sort of plans being made to get them back before Sunday? There is. uh, I understand the airlines are working with the clients who are already there. But I just, funny enough, got a call from a client I have that's down in Barbados. He says, "I, I have to get back by Sunday. And how do I get my negative PCR tests that I need with 72-hour time limit and still be on that plane on Sunday. So someone either hasn't thought this out or they're going to have to make provisions for individuals to get the negative PCR test to get on the plane. That's going to be a problem. Yeah, and again, we're just trying to sort all of this out, and that is a really good question here. Is that PCR test, is it mandatory after Sunday when this goes into effect? I mean, can you arrive here, back here, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that had another week or two maybe on their vacations but are going to hurry back now. If they get back before Sunday, is the PCR test, do we know, is it still necessary, still mandatory at that point? And what about quarantine? Great question. Uh, this is the, the second part of our discussion really is possibly this three-day quarantine scenario. Don't know when that's kicking into place because that's key. That is, out of today's announcements, that's even bigger than the other one with respect to 
Anybody traveling back into Canada can only go to four airports. That's Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, and Calgary. And at that point of entry, that's where they need the PCR test given that day. And if it takes 72 hours to to come back, you are staying in a hotel of some sort at $2,000 per person. It's mind-boggling the numbers going on here. Mm -hmm. Now, this PCR test, I'm sorry, do you need one before you board the plane and then you have to get one after you arrive back here? It would appear that way. No one said anything different. And remember, you need one when you got on that plane to leave. So, I mean, this is PCR test galore at 180 a shot in some cases all over the place. You've got a great question there. I don't know now that you're going to have it done the minute you land whether you still need it to get on the plane in the first place. So that's another one of the unknown questions at this point. All right, and let's delve into this quarantine a little further because, yes, that is also a big piece of news here uh, this afternoon. That uh, And you and I discussed this earlier in the week when it was being rumored and uh, bantied about. It's come to fruition now. You will have to, uh, if you arrive uh, in the country for non-essential travel, you'll have to go to kind of a government-approved uh, hotel at your own cost. That's correct, and it seems the cost he's addressed it being $2,000 a person, which is because the hotel has to gear up staff, cleaning, uh, disinfecting, all that, and he's put a cost of 2000 It's quite evident it's another de-incentivization to travel, and really you have to think about all the things that are going down now, and do you really want to be part of this? Yeah, because these hotels, they've got to get up and running as well, right, Marty? I mean, they're part of the uh, lockdown in hotspots like uh, Pierce and the GTA. I think the airport strip, I mean, yeah. it's going to have every single hotel. If, if in fact, Doug Ford said there were 30,000 people that came in last week, where are you going to put 30,000 people up in, in hotels on, on, on the airport strip? I, I have no idea. And then, wait, they said that if your test comes back positive, then you're being taken to another facility, more of a quarantine-type facility, which is another hotel somewhere. The ones who have the negative test can go home after three days, but they are even told that, uh, investigative follow-up is going to be stronger than it ever has been before. Yeah, I was going to ask about that as well, because that was part of the announcement today, right, is after this uh, three days, you get your PCR test if it's uh, negative. They are stepping up, uh, I don't know how to term it, other than surveillance, right, to make sure that people are abiding by the uh, quarantine rules, because there's been a lot of talk about that, that it's been really hit and miss. Yeah, I understand the, the the Prime Minister actually did say that they've hired new investigative procedures like a private investigator companies, uh, OPP, local police. They are all going to be on the lookout, I guess, for just someone that is, is not honoring, honoring the rules. All right. And uh, these new rules, they apply, as I understand it to Marty, to non-essential travel. Do we have a sense or a better sense of what actually constitutes non-essential as opposed to essential travel? Are there strict definitions? No, and I think there has to be really clearly that if it is because you are a a first-line worker, uh, an essential service, that's got to be addressed sooner than later. But at the end of the day, the other side of it is I'm just going on a vacation, and that is truly what is non-essential. So, you know, short of visiting a family member who's ill and things like that, I think that the bottom line is if you are just going on a pure vacation, if you're a Canadian snowbird or you are a March break vacationer, you are the one that's non-essential and who it's going to affect greatly. Yeah, tell us a bit more before I let you go, Marty, what you're hearing from clients, customers of yours. I mean, this is all just coming down in the last uh, couple of hours. Are there travelers, obviously, abroad Canadians right now that are uh, really scrambling? 
can I tell you for the majority of the Canadian snowbirds or my clientele for that matter, their only scrambling is finding out, Marty, can you extend to me longer so I can stay down here because I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back to sit in a hotel for three days at $2,000. So those ones are just going to say, I'm not going to be part of it. Buy me extra travel insurance so I can stay longer. And the ones who are planning on going away for sure, March break people are saying, you know what, history, I'm not going. I guess he's proved what he wanted to do, and I am no longer going to go on that March break trip. So that's the two effects that are happening right now. Yeah, and the overall effect of the uh, travel industry that, uh, I mean, as you well know, has been uh, hurting, uh, obviously, in the uh, airline uh, industry. I mean, obviously, I think uh, a lot of folks in those industries can understand what's going on, particularly with the numbers and the infection rate we see. But again, this is going to be really, really painful for those businesses. What was a, a dying industry is just I've taken the official death knell here. This is bad. This is really that that uh, March break business was huge. Even in, in this COVID era, there still would have been thousands that would have traveled. That is officially over now. So that's going to be incredibly problematic. All right, Marty, appreciate the time on this Friday. Thanks for sorting through this with us. My pleasure. Take care. Have a good weekend. You as well. There's our travel expert, Marty Firestone, president of Travel Secure, on these new uh, travel restrictions, travel rules just handed down. Back in this Friday, and unfortunately, it looks like we've hit another roadblock when it comes to Canada's vaccination program and the rollout. Uh, Moderna announcing that they will now ship 20 to 25% less product to us than they promised that for uh, next month for uh, February. So we're going to get a quarter less than what was promised by Moderna. And that of course is on top of the news of that production delay with Pfizer as they retool their plant. Once again, here's the prime minister from earlier today. I want to be clear. We will always share the most accurate information we have, but in the short term, those numbers can fluctuate. But as global production continues to pick up, there will be more stability in the system. And most importantly, this temporary delay doesn't change the fact that we will still receive 2 million doses of the Moderna vaccine as planned before the end of March, as we've been saying for months. And we're joined now by Professor Dion Aylman, who is a pandemic modeling expert at the University of Toronto, and she joins us now here on Global News Radio. Professor, good afternoon. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, hi, thank you for having me. All right, you're somebody who is a numbers person. You crunch the num- numbers. We just heard the uh, Prime Minister there saying we're still going to get uh, our Moderna supply and that as production ramps up, we'll get more and more of the vaccine we've been promised. At this point, though, uh, the promise, of course, was a vaccine for anyone who wants one by September. Do you think we need to revise that goal? Well, it's hard to say right now because uh, world production is in flux as um, you know, we know with Pfizer, they're retooling their manufacturing plants to produce more and faster. We'll see how much more uh, vaccines roll out from them. Uh, likewise, there are other companies producing vaccines that are expected to get approval soon, like from Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. And uh, if those do get approval, uh, both you know with the FDA in the U.S. and here in Canada, then that means that production on those could greatly increase, and then we might be able to get, um, you know, any number of vaccines from those places as well. So it's all a little bit of a, of a waiting game to see what ultimate production is is going to be. But we can expect that it's only going to increase and increase, and we'll get more and faster uh, as the weeks and months go by. 
So is Canada's job right now is to make sure that we are ready, do you think, when those vaccines uh, do arrive? I know we had to unfortunately close down that uh, mass vaccination clinic at the convention center uh, last week just because there was no supply of vaccine. But do we need to uh, obviously from coast to coast to coast have these vaccination centers ready to roll so we can maybe hopefully meet that uh, September promise? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Even if we had every vaccine for every person in Canada available on hand right now, it will take time just to get those needles into arms. And so the more effort that we can put in now, ensuring that we have fast, streamlined, efficient, and accessible means for people to get those vaccines means that once the vaccines are here, we'll be able to distribute them as fast as possible. All right. There's a lot of factors at play here, Professor, not only when it comes to the vaccines, but uh, obviously as to how COVID's affecting different communities, different areas across the country. Is a return to normal, is it kind of on a case-by-case basis, do you think, that some regions of the country, right now they're doing better, they're maybe less populated, so they'll be able to vaccinate more quickly and return to life more quickly? Yeah, so we can look at, for example, the Atlantic provinces as what a return to normal could look like for the rest of us as we get community spread under control with or without vaccines. Uh, The Atlantic provinces have had such low community spread for months now that they are in a semi-normal state of life now, and that's even before the vaccines. Um, You know, granted, any part of Canada could achieve that same Uh, amount of normalcy by just reducing community spread without waiting for vaccines. But that takes a lot of um, commitment and a little more hardship in terms of actual hard lockdowns uh, for the population to get there. And uh, in absence of of those more stringent measures, then we really just have to wait for the vaccines. And in a more populated area, you're going to need more people to be vaccinated before you can be assured that community spread is going to be very low. So it will just take longer in places that are hot spots right now and that are more populated. Yeah, Ontario, as uh, you're well aware, released new modeling yesterday in light of the COVID variants that we've now seen, uh, not only in this province, but uh, it's uh, obviously across Canada. How much of a wild card are these variants when it comes to the vaccination rollout and dropping the caseload? Well, it does seem that the uh, UK and South African variants that are out right now are actually um, uh, controlled with uh, with the vaccines, maybe not uh, quite as well as pre-existing variants, but enough that uh, it shouldn't impede our ability to return to normal along the same schedule. However, the longer it takes us globally to get COVID under control is means that there's more opportunity for Uh, the virus to mutate and have more and more variants. And it is possible that one of those variants might not be um, tackled by the current vaccines that we have, which means that we could put ourselves back into a position again where we're having to reevaluate what's going on, how is disease spreading, um, who's really vulnerable and what might need to be done to stop the spread. Yeah, Is it just a a matter of fact that we just don't know what these variants are going to do, that only time uh, will tell? Again, I know we got the modeling yesterday, and modeling gives us those quote-unquote worst-case scenarios, but as it stands right now, we just really don't know how the the variants uh, might factor in? Well, for the UK variant, uh, there's definitely been, you know, some analysis on it uh, to show that it's, uh, I think, about 56% more transmissible than pre-existing variants, although not more severe. So that is generally enough information to uh, to make some projections um, that uh, that can give us ideas of where we might be. And we saw that with Ontario's modeling yesterday. But for variants that haven't yet appeared, 
we really just don't know because they're not here. We can only hypothesize uh, what future variants might appear. Might they be even more contagious, uh, but maybe might much less severe or more contagious and more severe or less contagious uh, and less severe. We really just kind of don't know until until it happens. How much of the uh, population, do we have a number, how much of the population needs to be vaccinated for it to be effective, whether it be just, I don't know, a certain percentage of those in the GTA or uh, just the overall population? Is there a target? Yeah, so different... Um, Modeling groups uh, have different estimates about what percentage of a population needs to be immune, uh, in other words, uh, vaccinated, uh, before there can be a return to normalcy. But generally, that number is between, let's say, 70 to 80 percent immune, which in the case of a vaccine means about 90 percent of people being vaccinated. Uh, so that's uh, that's a quite large number, right? It's a high bar to meet, which mm-hmm. means that uh, it's really important for everybody who is eligible to get vaccinated to actually get vaccinated because there are always going to be vulnerable members of our population who can't get vaccinated for medical reasons. And well, it's on the rest of us to get vaccinated to protect them, just like with any other vaccine. Yeah. Numbers in the province are fortunately going down. We're just above 1,800 new cases today, I believe, in Ontario. So uh, I think we're just over 2,000 yesterday, but uh, we've been generally, the the average of the trend has been under 2,000 cases uh, for the past uh, seven days or so. But if you open up again, and there's been talk about that, about easing restrictions and the lockdown, don't we risk those numbers rising once again without a vaccine? And do you think, Professor, it's just a simple fact uh, here in Toronto, the GTA, that we are likely, uh, as we all probably don't like this news, we are likely under lockdown for most of the year because we're just going to have to wait for the uh, vaccine and this uh, 90% vaccination rate? Uh, Yeah, I mean, numbers are coming down across Ontario because of the current measures. Uh, Yeah, I think that should be hopefully obvious, uh, but uh, I think people do fall into this trap. Well, things are getting better, so therefore we should just, you know, undo everything that's put us in this better position. And of course, if we do that, then COVID will just take off again, and we might end up in a situation where an actual real lockdown is imposed. Uh, because I, I really don't like referring to our current set of restrictions as an actual lockdown because not that much is actually really forcibly locked down, um, although it is unfortunate that kids are being held out of school because community spread uh, has gotten so bad that there are questions of kids' safety uh, in schools. <clears throat> but, um, you know, aside from that, you know, restaurants are still open for takeout. Um, you know, small retailers are doing curbside business, big boxes, um, are still open with capacity restrictions. And even office places, although they are strongly encouraged uh, to let people work from home, it is ultimately up to each business to decide whether or not they want to force their employees to come in. And that is definitely very problematic and not uh, falling under the categorization of lockdown. Right. But again, this is just, a, we're going to have to accept this. This is our way of life for the foreseeable future until we get these vaccines. Yeah, it really does. It really does seem that way. You know, unless we can get ourselves back to where we were in, say, August, where uh, in Ontario we were having about 100 cases per day, Toronto about 20 cases per day with uh, much less restrictions than we have now. Unless we can get ourselves back to there before the vaccine, uh, I think the only prudent thing is for us to continue under these uh, particular measures that we're under. And we just have to hope that more financial um, support is forthcoming from the province to help people and businesses um, weather through these difficult times. 
All right, Professor Elman, really appreciate your time with us on this Friday. Have a happy and safe weekend. You too. Appreciate it. Professor Dion Elman is a pandemic modeling expert at the University of Toronto. Okay, the uh, GameStop Wall Street fiasco continues to make headlines. Many now saying that this is just the beginning, perhaps, of social media having a direct impact on the world of finance. In fact, this story, it has gotten so big, it actually drove Jon Stewart, formerly of The Daily Show, to sign up for Twitter. And in his first tweet, uh, John writes, uh, this is BS. The Redditors aren't cheating. They're just joining a party Wall Street insiders have been enjoying for years. Don't shut them down. Maybe sue them for copyright infringement instead. We have learned nothing from 2008. And here for more on this is money expert Preet Banerjee. He joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hey, Preet, happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, sir. All right. Uh, talk to me like I'm in grade four. I know that's not much of a stretch, but I really just don't get the stock market. Can you break down what is going on here and maybe just the simplest of terms for people like me? Yeah, absolutely. So the first part of the story is this company called GameStop. What do they do? They're a mall-based retailer of physical video games. And so a lot of people say, wow, that sounds like a dying business. Who goes to a mall to buy video games when you can just download them at home? Sure. And so this created um, what's called a short interest. People thought the stock is going to go down. And so if you want to make money on a stock going down, you actually sell the shares first and hope to buy them back later at a lower price. So it's like buying and selling in reverse. And the way that that works is you have to borrow those shares from your brokerage, you sell them, and then you hope that you can buy them back later at a lower price. So that's called a short sale. Now, at the same time, this activist investor joined the board of this company called GameStop, and everyone thought, wow, this is the second coming of Christ, because he had taken a previous company that was in a similar situation. They were not adapting to an online world very well, and he turned that company around. So a lot of people thought, you know what? There's hope. So they started to buy the stock, thinking that the price should go up because of this guy who's come on board. So here's where it gets interesting. If you are short-selling a stock, you are losing money if the stock goes up. And you may get nervous and eventually bail out of your position because you want to avoid future bigger losses. And the way you get out of your position is you buy the stock to close your position. That creates buying pressure, which further pushes the stock price up, and it starts this positive feedback cycle. That's the short squeeze that everyone's talking about. The second element that's really changed the dynamic is that there's a group of millions of young highly risky speculative investors who have entered the fray, and they belong to this subreddit called Wall Street Bets. And this is a young group of investors who have grown up seeing nothing but Wall Street bailouts while they're faced with high student debt, high house prices, and what have you, and they're looking for a way to stick it to Wall Street. And so they've banded together to try and sort of step on the neck of these billion billionaire hedge fund managers. All right. And obviously they achieved that, right? Because uh, at one point, uh, Wall Street, uh, they halted trading of the GameStop uh, stock? Multiple times over multiple days because the stock was moving up so fast 
you would wake up in the morning and before the market opened, you'd see that it was up 100% overnight. When the market starts to, to trade in the morning, it would go up another 100% for a couple of days. And so the stock, at one point, the year-over-year -year return has been like 10,000%. And this is completely detached from all reality in terms of what this company is worth. It's no longer about how much does this company sell. It's really now a battle, which started as David versus Goliath. But I'll tell you the other thing that people are missing on the story is there's other people on Wall Street who've seen this, and they're getting in on the action and driving up the price, too, because if Wall Street can sniff a way to make money, you can bet they're going to get in on that game. Okay, so is John Stewart right in his tweet when he says, hey, don't shut these people down on social media? He's basically arguing that they're just giving Wall Street a taste of their own medicine. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and again, you know, these young investors, again, they grew up seeing Wall Street get bailed out time and time again. And hedge fund managers, they will find different ways to try and make money in the markets, and they can exert a lot of pressure, and they can crush the individual investor, and no one seems to stand up for the little guy. And so people are asking, does it make any sense to try and restrict what's going on? Because at the end of the day, the bunch of young investors who believe that the stock should be worth more than it's trading for, and they're just exercising their opinion by voting with their wallet and buying those shares. There's nothing wrong with that. All right, so how much of a problem, Preet, does Wall Street have or any stock market, uh, you know, the TSE uh, here in Canada as well? I mean, are we seeing a fundamental uh, shift here, something that uh, the markets weren't prepared for or can deal with, uh, social media's uh, influence on the stock market? Right now, I would say the problem is not that big. It is concentrated into just a few names, and these companies are not particularly big on the stock market. And that's part of the reason why the price can move so much, because they're relatively small fish in a big pond. You know, if this was a company like, you know, the, the Amazon of the world, you can drive the price of some of the largest companies in the world this much, then you can bet a whole lot of people will be looking at this and saying, hey, there's a bigger problem. So right now, it's not so much a problem yet, but it does tell us the power of, you know, the Internet and, you know, these big subreddit groups of millions of investors can make an impact on the market and cause people to lose billions of dollars. It's just in this case, the people who are losing billions are these hedge fund managers, which, you know, no one really cares too much about them. Yeah, there's not a lot of love lost uh, there. And on the other side, some of these in this uh, Reddit subgroup, I mean, they have really made some bank here, haven't they? I was reading about uh, one young investor who, uh, I think, unbeknownst to his folks, actually uh, used his parents' uh, mortgage to, uh, you know, invest and bet on this. Well, yeah. So remember, the name of this subreddit is Wall Street Bets, and it is littered with these incredibly risky uh, investment strategies, which involve some exotic derivatives and um, much more speculative investments than just buying and selling shares. They use call options, etc. And what I'll tell you is, yes, there are a lot of stories in there, people who have made millions of dollars in the span of weeks. But there's also, and they're they're as proud of this, posting stories about how they lose their entire student loans or their parents' retirement savings because their parents trusted them to try and make a quick buck. So it, there's both. There's Yes, there are people who are winning the lottery, but there's a lot more people who are losing their shirts as well. So at the end of the day, this is a cautionary tale uh, for people because I think a lot of people have been sitting back. I mean, I've even heard friends say, oh, why didn't I get in on that? Uh, boy, I wish I had invested. <laughs> Yeah, that's too late. You know, when you're just hearing about it now, it's too late. Uh, don't try and go in right now because, yes, 
there's still some, you know, big gains that are being made. Even today, it's it's wildly fluctuating, 100% up and down. But, you know, when the retail average investor gets in after hearing about it in the news, it's generally too late, and in, there's a high risk of getting burned. I would say stick to your long-term plan. Don't think short-term all of a sudden. It's a recipe for disaster. Good advice, as always. Preet, appreciate it. Thanks so much. Enjoy your weekend. Stay safe. Thanks, Jeff. All right, money expert Preet Banerjee with us this afternoon.